Father God, we're just so grateful that we have the freedom in this country to study your word. And Lord, I so appreciate the women that have, have come week after week and are doing this study. Um, you have taught us so much in the last three weeks. And Lord, I just pray that we have ears to hear this morning and that you would take what we hear and and put it in our minds so that we have that increased knowledge of you that you have desire for us. And Lord, then that you take it into our heart and into our very hands and feet as we work out our salvation and uh, our sanctification in the power of the of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this morning, and thank you for what you are going to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I'm in spitting distance here of you all. Um, the first word in our passage today is uh, the word therefore. And of course, it means that what Paul is going to say next relates back to what he has said before. And what he has said before to us in the last three weeks in his letter to the Corinthians is that he has heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. He has prayed for them to grow into spiritual maturity, to bear fruit, and he has thanked God for saving them through Jesus Christ. This letter is clearly written to believers in Jesus. Then Paul tells us what Jesus has done for believers. Paul says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that is our salvation. And then Paul tells us who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things. All things were created for him. And, <clears throat> excuse me, he was before all things, and he holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn of the dead, preeminent in all things, and God is pleased to fully dwell in him. Jesus has reconciled to himself all things on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Jesus is a revealed mystery, a salvation his salvation is for everyone, not just the Jews, but the Gentile also. And we probably all know that a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. So you didn't know you'd learned all that in these last three weeks, did you? Having said all these things before, in our lesson today, Paul says, therefore. And it means that we're to listen more closely because what's coming next is important. He's going to tie his thoughts together and... Um, with what he has said before and with what he is saying today. So let's look at our outline today. I put a little um, slip on your um, chair there so it'll be easier for you to follow along. I've entitled this talk, uh, Having Received Christ, and we're going to look at Colossian, Colossians 2, 6 through 23 today. So having received Christ in our first division, we're to walk in him in verses 6 through 7. In our second division, we're to live in him in verses 8 through 15. And the third division, we're to trust in him. So let's go into our first division. Having received Christ, we're to walk in him. Now, in these verses 6 through 23, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the phrase in him is repeated six times, and the phrase with him is repeated three times, and the phrase with Christ is stated once. So what he has to say is important. 
The same power of God that saved us, our salvation, is the same power that is now at work in us as we move towards spiritual maturity. God is moving us towards holiness as we walk in him, in Jesus. And this process is taking place in us, and that is called sanctification. We don't ever reach complete holiness in this life, but we will be made completely holy when we are with him in eternity. So Paul gives the clear command. He says in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's salvation, so walk in him, that's sanctification. So what does it mean to walk in him? Walk means step by step. It's a steady progression forward. We're going in the same direction that Jesus is going. Sometimes we do that really well. Sometimes we just kind of shuffle along half-heartedly. And sometimes we stumble and fall, and we even walk backwards for a season. We are sinners, and we need to repent, and then we're forgiven, and then we begin to walk forward again. Repent means to turn. So if you're going this way, and Jesus says, repent, then you do to do a 180 so you can walk this way and be walking with him. So as we look back over our Christian life as a whole, what we usually see is that there has been progress forward. This is not the first time that Paul has used the word picture of walking. Colossians 1, 10 through 12 says, walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And we studied that. And then Paul tells us what worthy is. It says, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In other words, we're not doing this under our own power. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That doesn't happen all at once. It happens step by step. Believers all walk in him and we're all headed the same direction, but we all walk at different speeds and we aren't all in the same place as our Christian walk. So what that means is that we have to give each other the same grace and forgiveness that God has given us. Then Paul continues on in Colossians 2, 7. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. They were taught the truth of the gospel and they are continued They are to continue to grow in the truth of the gospel. Think of new believers like a small bedding plant. You don't bring that little bedding plant home, and you don't leave it in that little pot. You get a bigger pot, and you put some potting soil in it, and then you put that little plant in there so you can grow. Well, I'm a very visual person, and my mind kind of weirdly sees everything everyday things as spiritual truths and so it helps me to remember them so here's what my what popped into my mind as I was thinking about that Jesus is the best place to be planted in order to grow and be built up and so what that makes Jesus is the best and original miracle grow potting soil ever (laughs) and I, I don't say that to be disrespectful please don't think that But what a visual like that does for me is now every time I go out in the garden and I plant something, it makes me think of how I'm planted in Jesus Christ and how I'm to grow in Jesus Christ. 
Well, our right response, Paul says, is in the last part of verse 7. He says, abounding in thanksgiving. Why is that important? Romans 1.21 says in the NIV, and it's talking about non-believers in Romans 1.21. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Gratitude to God is one of the hallmarks of a Christian believer. We are most grateful for his saving grace and his sanctifying power. So here's the truth that I'd like you to walk away this morning uh, with from these two verses. Believers in Christ will grow in Christ, and that's what I want you to remember. Believers in Christ will grow in Christ. Now, thinking back to our being rooted and built up in Christ, let's think for a moment what a plant needs to grow. It needs nourishment, it needs light, and it needs water. And those uh, are the things, same things that we as believers in Christ need. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, our nourishment. In John 7.38, Jesus says, I am the living water. And in John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. All the necessities for sanctification and for growing in our, rela- our relationship with him are found in him. So let's ask ourselves some questions. How is our walk in him making our heart spiritually healthy? You know, if you don't physically walk fast and you don't get your heart rate up, you aren't going to be physically healthy. And what we need to do when we're walking with Christ is to walk strong in him so that our heart becomes strong. How is our lack of walking in him each day slowing our progress into spiritual maturity? Have you ever met a Christian who says, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years and they don't even know the basics of the gospel. They're really not walking forward, are they? Well, let's go into our second division now. and We're going to look at how having received Christ, we are to live in him. And that's in verses 8 through 15. And in this section, Paul gives us a clear warning. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then the very next thing Paul says in verse 9 is in him. And the next seven verses then list the resources that believers have in Christ that combat this wrong thinking that might otherwise take us captive or hinder our spiritual maturity. These are the gospel truths that keep us rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. So verse 9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. That's kind of a hard concept to wrap wrap our minds around. This is important because Jesus is our holy, sinless, one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice that frees us from the penalty of sin, which is death. And nothing can do that but a holy, sinless, one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice. Verse 10 says, And you have been filled... In him who is the head of, head of, excuse me, let me try it again. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
Believers in Christ have the Spirit, that Holy Spirit of Christ, dwelling within them. Ephesians 3.19 speaks of the purpose of this filling as to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If we do do not know how much God loves us, we are ignorant of the very basis of our salvation and of our sanctification, which is God's great love for us. And as we learn in other parts of the Bible, his spirit in us is the power to live and grow as believers. And there's many, many lessons we could learn about the Holy Spirit, but that's going to be for another time and place. Verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision, as you know, was a physical outward symbol of the Old Testament covenant between Abraham and God. And you can read about that in Genesis 17 if you want to remind yourself about that. But let's look at some other verses. Deuteronomy 36, speaking of the future, says, The Lord will circumcise our hearts. Romans 25 through 29 talks about circumcision and concludes in verse 29 that circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. And then in Philippians 3, 3, it says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is that we need God to do a spiritual work on our heart, a circumcision on our heart, so that we will even desire to follow Jesus Christ. You know, in all the ritual and the law of the Old Testament, God was showing us that outwardly conforming to the law could not save us because we were, it was impossible for us to keep it perfectly. And we would have to keep it perfectly if we were ever going to be in the presence of a holy God. The law only points out how far short we fall of being able to do anything under our own power about our sin. And we need a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. You know, was Jesus physically circumcised? I, we don't know for sure, but he was a Jewish boy born to Jewish parents, so the likelihood is that he was physically circumcised. But that's not what we're talking about. The circumcision of Christ referred to here points us to the fact that Christ was cut off. He died to defeat sin and death. And in his death and resurrection, we as believers have been cut off from sin and death also. And now we live that new life in him, in his power. Well, the next resource that Paul tells us about is in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And we had a beautiful illustration of that this last Sunday, didn't we, in our baptism service. And uh, we know that water baptism does not save us. It's just an outward reality, uh, an outward symbol of an inward reality that has happened in our hearts. That circumcision has already taken place. It is a witness to the world that we believe in Jesus Christ and... 
when we go under the water, it's symbolic of us being buried with Christ. And when we're raised up, it's symbolic of our new life with Christ. So our next resource to combat false teaching is in verse 13. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the, un- <clears throat> excuse me, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, that meaning God, nailing it to the cross. In those days, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> In those days, criminals who were crucified had a list of sins nailed to the cross so that people passing by knew why they were being crucified. Now, Jesus was sinless. He had no sins. Uh, There were no sins that he committed, so there could not be a list. There was a sign on his cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And remember, they had the kind of little brouhaha about the guy said he should have put Jesus of Nazareth who who said he was the king of the Jews, but it wasn't. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So some might have thought that was a sin, but it really was truth, wasn't it? So what was nailed to Jesus' cross? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God who made him who had no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's not what was nailed to the cross, but who. Jesus carried our sins in his body, and he was nailed to the cross. Our forgiveness of sin is based only on the fact that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. And then lastly, in verse 15, it says, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Jesus. So again, this visual pops into my mind, and what I see is Satan and his demons, and they're dancing around, they're doing this victory dance, and they had their hands up high. And then I see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those religious leaders, and they're high-fiving and they're chest-bumping. Well, maybe not that. They were probably piously smug, don't you think? But they were celebrating because Jesus was dying on the cross. They think they won, but they didn't. They're on the cross with his arms stretched out to the side, with his head hanging down, bleeding in pain and agony and looking completely defeated. Jesus was the victor. He raised up his head and he said with a loud shout, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. They did not kill him. He chose to die for us because of his great love for us. It was not nails that nailed him to the cross. It was his love for us. By his death, he defeated sin, and by his resurrection, he defeated death. And we need not fear or doubt or worry because we are in him. Sin and death will not defeat us. I don't ever want to hear any of you saying, well, I hope I go to heaven, or I think maybe I'll go to heaven. Be confident in the fact that Jesus Christ has died for you. So what's the main truth I want you to take away from this section of Scripture? Believers in Christ have resources in Christ. 
believers in Christ have resources in Christ. Well, let's think about the importance of being in something from an everyday practical point of view. Being in an airplane at 20,000 feet is definitely much better than being on the wing, isn't it? (laughs) In the plane, we have resources that keep us from being swept away. We have a seat, we have a seat belt, we have oxygen, and we even have peanuts. So every time you get in a plane now, what are you going to remember? We have resources in Christ. (laughs) So the truth we want to remember is that in Christ, we have all the resources we need to keep us from being swept away from the truth of the gospel by false teaching. And in Christ, if we're not being swept away by this false teaching, we have all the resources of the gospel to grow us into mature believers. So here's some questions we want to ask ourselves. How am I using the resources I have in Christ to live free from false teaching? You know, when you hear something and a little red flag goes off in your head, you know, investigate. Go back to these verses in Colossians 2, 6 through 23. And then how is the truth of the gospel sanctifying me each day? We need to be just as confident, uh, uh, conscious of our sanctification as we are of our salvation. Well, let's go into our, first, our, our final division where Paul says, Having believed in Christ, trust in him. And that's in verses 16 through 23. In this section, Paul is confronting the false teaching that seemed to be plaguing the Colossians at that time, and for that matter, can plague Christians today. It can be very overt or it can be very subtle, but our responsibility is to know the truth so well that we can recognize false teaching. And verse 16 begins with another, therefore. Paul has told us all these wonderful truths about who Jesus is and what he has done. He's told us of the amazing benefits that we have because we are in Christ. And now he says in verses 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of God-given commands about how to worship and what to eat and what to drink and where to worship. And the Jewish people followed those, as they should have, because that's what the light that they had at that time. But as you look at them more closely in light of New Testament truth, what you see is that these things were all symbolic and, in fact, pointed to Christ. Think of the candelabra in the temple. There's the light of the world, Jesus. Think of the bread, the showbread in the temple. There's your bread of life. Think of the veil in the the temple that was torn at the time of the crucifixion. So as you can see, these were all symbols. But instead of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of symbolism, the substance, Jewish Christians wanted to add Jewish traditions and ritualism to the worship of Christ. And Paul is saying, don't let them do that. The substance uh, is here. 
Paul continues on in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you, leading you to believe you are not really a Christian, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, do people make us feel sometimes like we're not a Christian or we're bad Christians? You bet. If we're not careful and spiritually discerning, we can be made to feel like second-class Christians by any number of well-intentioned people. Or even worse, I had a friend who was told by a lovely, well-intentioned Christian woman that she was not a Christian because she didn't homeschool her children. That's how bad it can get sometimes, and I'm sure we all have variations of that story. What is Paul's observation in regard to these things that people want to add to the gospel? Look in verses 20 through 23. It says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive in the world, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Why, according to human and precepts and teachings? These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, some people have such a problem with the simplicity of the gospel and they start adding bits and pieces of different man-made religions into the way they worship. And, and oftentimes they try to impose those things on us also, uh, kind of implying that if we don't, you know, pray a certain amount of time or do it in a certain way that we really aren't, you know, up to par Christians. <clears throat> Oftentimes we can be led astray from the simplicity of the gospel by those who say we have a higher knowledge or a secret knowledge about spiritual things and rise to a and that we could rise to a higher spiritual plane a sort of an inner circle of privileged believers uh, like a lot of times you see in different religions. <clears throat> well, that's very snobbish and prideful thinking that has no place in the humbleness and simplicity of the gospel. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There is no higher knowledge of God than what he has revealed to us in his Bible. The difference between man-made religions and Christianity is that all man-made religions are man trying to reach out to what they perceive as a wrathful God. Man-made religions are sinful people striving, striving under their own power to be accepted by God. But Christianity is the opposite of that. It's God first reaching out to sinful man. A loving God accepting us on the basis of a sacrifice that he, God, has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And that's a huge difference. Our best protection from being led astray by false teaching <clears throat> is to know the truth about Jesus and to know it well. So don't go studying other religions. Study, take your time and study Christianity and know it well. When treasury agents are being taught to recognize counterfeit money, they don't study fake money. 
They study the real thing, and they know every curlicue and every little dot and every little number on it. They study the real thing, and they know real money so well that when they see a counterfeit bill, they immediately recognize it as being false. And that's our greatest protection against false teaching, to study and know the truth of Jesus so well, when something false comes along, we're going to be able to immediately recognize it as contrary to the truth that we have been taught. So here's the main truth I want you to take away from this section. Believers in Christ need not add anything to Christ. Believers in Christ need not add anything to Christ. Well, how do we guard against adding anything to Christ? Let me illustrate that with a personal story. I went to a big box store because I needed to have some keys made for my house. And when I got home, one of the four keys that I had made worked. So I had to go back, and I had to go back, and I had to go back. And it was a hassle. I, you know, I spent probably almost a full day trying to get four keys made for my house. Well, when I was talking to a friend about this story, she said she always goes to a little independent lock and key store to get her keys made and that they always work the first time. And in fact, she was curious about that because she's heard some of these horror stories about keys. And so she asked the man one day, she said, why do your keys always work the first time? And you know what? He had an answer for her. He says, every morning I recalibrate I recalibrate the machine back to the factory settings. And that's what we as Christians need to do each morning. In order to not be led astray by false teaching, we need to recalibrate back to the simple, basic truth of the gospel that we have been taught. And we can do that by praying something like this. Let's pray. God, I know I am a sinner, unable to save myself from the penalty of sin, which is death and eternal separation from you. I need a Savior. You have provided that Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place. By his death on the cross, Jesus has defeated sin, and by his resurrection, he has defeated death, and he has reconciled me to you, God. Because he has risen from the grave and is now seated at your right hand, I too have risen to a new life, a life lived now in him and a future eternal life with you forever. Thank you, God. God, I am in awe of what you've done. Christ alone is supremely sufficient for salvation and sanctification. And you, God, are worthy of all glory and praise. I am eternally grateful for your great love for me displayed in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.